So it's Romans 15 to 1 to 6 for a sermon I've entitled, A Call to Unity. Why don't you follow along as I read. It says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For, whoever, or for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Motto, a motto, according to the Britannica Dictionary, is a short sentence, phrase, that expresses a rule guiding the behavior of a particular person or group. For instance, the Boy Scouts, what's their motto? Be prepared. The Marines, what's their motto? In Latin, semper fidelis, which means always faithful. Do you know that every one of our states has an official state motto? Let me give some of them and in your own mind, see if you know which state it is. Live free or die. That is New Hampshire. I saw somebody lipping it. <laughs> Sick semper tyrannis, which means always to tyrants. That is the motto of Virginia. That's also what John Booth Wilkes said, Wilkes Booth, thank you, said when he jumped up on the stage and shot President Lincoln. Mountaineers are always free. Now, some of you are thinking that's Kansas. No, not Kansas. That would be West Virginia. How about this one? We dare defend our rights. That's Alabama. Eureka, I found it. That's California, you're right, with their gold. How about gold and silver? That's Montana. How about if you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you. Now, you might be thinking that's Florida, but it's not. It's actually Michigan. How about forward? Thank you. Someone got that. How about the star of the north? If you're a hockey fan, you know the north stars, you should know that's Minnesota. How about north to the future? That's actually Alaska. Some of them actually have religious themes, language drawn from the scripture. God enriches. That's Arizona. With God, all things are possible. That's Ohio, the only one that actually has a Bible verse. And also, my favorite one is with Hawaii. The life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness. Now, how about our national motto? Do you know what that is? There's actually two of them. The official one is, in God we trust. But the other one is a de facto motto, which is e pluribus unum, which means out of many, one. Now, that motto which is on the seal of the United States and on some of our coins, has reference to the 13 original colonies which joined together to make one nation, out of many, one. But e pluribus unum uh, is fitting for our country as a motto for another reason. I mean, we're a nation of immigrants who have come from every part of the world, and the hope has always been that despite our differences, we could nevertheless be united as one people, Americans. Of course, achieving and maintaining that unity is not an easy task. It's rare to find a multi-ethnic nation where it's free from tension and strife. And even in our country, which historically has been thought of as a melting pot, in recent times we've had a lot of people trying to stir up the pot with the intent of inflaming passions. 
and causing division. Well, long before our founding fathers were trying to bring E Pluribus Unum to America, the Apostle Paul was trying to foster it in the Church of Rome. Now, addressing a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles who were divided over the issue of eating or not eating certain foods or keeping or not keeping certain days, Paul urged the believers to do whatever was necessary to maintain the unity of the church despite their disagreements over these matters. Well, because Jesus expects his church to stay united in the truth, even when there's disagreements over certain practices, it's worth us taking time to hear Paul and heed his words in this call to unity found in this portion of God's word. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father and God, we do pray for grace and mercy. Help us to see what's here. You speak to your people through your word. So speak to us now and give us grace to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this call to unity, we find four things. First of all, uh, Paul gives an exhortation to the church, an exhortation to the church, and that's verses 1 to 2. Secondly, he provides an example for us to follow, and that's in verse 3. Third, he speaks of the encouragement that comes from Scripture, and that's verse 4. And finally, he offers a prayer for the people, and that's 5 to 6. Now, keep in mind what's going on in this chapter. The church in Rome had divisions over the issues of whether Christians should or should not eat certain foods and whether they were required to keep Jewish holidays or not. Now, although the church in Rome was primarily made up of Gen uh, Jews at the beginning, the number of Gentiles that started coming into the church increased over the years. And then at one point, the Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome, and so there were hardly any Jews left in the city and few left in the church. And at that time, the Gentiles started to come in in even greater numbers. But a few years later, they allowed them to come back in. So you can imagine the tension as they come back in to what was their church, but now it's filled with Gentiles. Oh, it'd be this similar to this. Imagine you uh, attend a Lutheran church in New Ulm, as they call it, Minnesota. And uh, it's a German Lutheran church. But in your area, lots of Hmong people moved in. And for some reason, you had to leave for a while, and you came back, and you found out all the pews were taken out. People were sitting uh, uh, together on the floor. The place was filled with all these Hmong people, not very tall. And then you go to the potluck, and you're asking yourself things like this. What's all these rice dishes? I mean, what's, what's, a cab what's in that cabbage roll? And, and what is fish sauce? Where's the jello salads? I mean, how can you have casseroles without cream of mushroom soup? <laughs> now, food issues in the Roman church were not simply a matter of taste, but a matter of conscience for some. Evidently, some who were raised Jewish with a kosher diet just felt they could not eat meat, not knowing whether it was butchered according to Jewish standards or not. Others were uneasy about drinking wine. Maybe it had been dedicated to one of the pagan gods. Now, most of the people in the Roman church, uh, including many Jews, and almost all the Gentiles understood that when we shifted into the new covenant that Jesus established, those dietary restrictions in the Mosaic law no longer applied to God's people. Not only Gentiles, but Jews were free from them. And these are the ones that Paul refers to as those who are strong in faith, meaning they understand the implications of the new covenant. Others, those Paul calls weak in faith, didn't quite understand all the implications, and so they didn't want to eat meat because it bothered their conscience. Now, Paul's not concerned over whether you keep a kosher diet or not, but he's very concerned about how people view each other in the church and treat each other in relationship to these issues. And so he starts with an exhortation, and this is found in verse 1 to 2. Now, Cambridge Dictionary defines exhortation as the act of strongly encouraging or trying to persuade someone to do something. Hey, there's a train coming down the track. I strongly urge you not to cross it until it goes by. Think about one time my wife and I were down in Red Wing, Minnesota, and uh, the track runs right through the town. 
and they don't really have barriers up to it. And there were three teenage people sitting, uh, standing near the track, and they were laughing and talking. And the track was, or the tr uh, train was coming down the track, and they were standing pretty close to it. And he was on the horn, and they waited and waited. And when they were, he was about, the train was about 15 yards before they jumped over the track, and then laughed and laughed and laughed. Now, I don't know what it is about being a teenager. You hit 13 and you lose all your sense, and it only begins to start to come back when you're about 25 or so. Well, the freight train heading down the track in Rome was division in the church over the issue of food and what you could eat and what you couldn't. And so Paul was exhorting the people in the church to, to back off and to, to make some accommodations so as not to have anyone get hurt or cause the church to be derailed in the process. And so he writes this, Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good and to his edification. Now, in addressing the strong, Paul means those who understand that the Christian faith is not primarily about rituals and rites, eating certain foods, not eating certain foods, keeping certain days or not keeping certain days. He told us earlier that the Christian faith is about pursuing righteousness by loving God and loving others so that Christ might be honored in our lives. Now, notice Paul starts this exhortation by saying, now we who are strong. Paul identifies and agrees with the strong faith believers who understand that these issues are not significant in and of themselves. Now, I have to tell you, we're entering our in the Lenten season. There's uh, many Christians who practice Lent. They give up certain uh, foods or practices during this time of the year. And, and honestly, that's fine if you want to do that. But it doesn't score you any points with God. If the things that you're giving up, like drinking coffee, aren't sinful, you don't need to give them up. On the other hand, if they are sinful, like getting drunk, or swearing, you better not pick them up after Lent is over. Honey, I'm going to show you how much I love you. I am going to stop beating you for this whole month. Yeah, that's not to your credit. Well, one more thing that needs to be noted in this first book, our first verse. As Paul sees it, the strong Christians are those who know and understand what Christ has done and the implications for their life because of that. In other words, strong Christians are those who know the scripture and therefore have good theology. I have to tell you, as a pastor, my main task is to accurately, carefully, systematically, and constantly teach the word of God so the people in the church grow solid and strong in their faith. The more of God's word you take into your life and live out in your life, the stronger you are going to be. Now here Paul wants the strong faith Christians in the church to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just to please themselves. Now, by bear, Paul does not mean simply put up with. He's not saying, I want you to take this attitude. Well, I guess as a strong faith Christian, I'm just going to have to put up with all you weak faith believers who haven't achieved my superior knowledge. No, Paul wants these strong faith Christians to show their maturity by being concerned for their weaker brothers and sisters and not doing anything that might actually cause them to stumble in their faith. So the Greek word for bear here has the idea of lifting up, raising up, carrying. I mean, think of the Vietnam War. A platoon's out on patrol. They're attacked by mortar fire and machine gun. They manage to beat back their attackers, but three of the soldiers are wounded. Do they leave their buddies behind? No, you never leave anyone behind. But what if he was shot in the leg and he can't walk? Well, then you put him on a stretcher. He who has no strength or without strength, and you carry him with you. The road is long. 
with many a winding turns that leads to who knows where, who knows where. But I'm strong, strong enough to carry him. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. So on we go. His welfare is my concern. No burden is he to bear. We'll get there. For I know he will not encumber me. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. You know where the inspiration came for that song? From James Wells, moderator of the United Free Church of Scotland. He told a story of a little girl he saw carrying a big baby boy in his 1884 book, The Parables of Jesus. Seeing her struggle, someone asked her if she wasn't tired. And uh, with surprise, she responded, No, he ain't heavy. He's my brother. Well, Paul is saying to strong faith Christians that since Jesus died for Jews and Gentiles, whether that we have an understanding of all the implications or not, even if he's without strength, his welfare is our concern. I came across an interesting video the other day on YouTube. It was called Let's, Let's Ask Shogo. Shogo's a Japanese young man. It was entitled Why the Japanese Are the Most Unwilling to Help in the World. A young man, as I mentioned, who's Japanese himself, pointed out that they did a survey for the Charity uh, Aid Foundation, uh, which ranked Japan dead last in the countries in the World Giving Index. In their survey, they asked people if they had done one of the following three in the last month. The first was help a stranger or someone you didn't know who needed help. The second was donate money to charity. The third was volunteer your time uh, to an organization. The Japanese finished dead last of 160 countries in doing that. Now, this young Japanese man was trying to explain some of the cultural and historical reasons that Japanese are cold-hearted. That was his words, not mine. But I wonder if perhaps the reason that Japan is cold-hearted is because there are so few Christians and so little Christian influence in Japan. They might, not have, an excuse, they might have an excuse for being cold-hearted, but those in the church have none. He goes on to say this, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. I have to tell you, we have to be careful about being man-pleasers because the Bible says the fear of the man is a trap. In John's Gospel, in chapter 12, we read about these sad words at some as they responded to Jesus. It said this, John 12, 42 to 43, it says, Many even of the rulers believed in him. They believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear because they would be put out of the synagogue. Listen to this. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. But there is another sense in which we should be pleasing to others, especially to other believers, which is who Paul has in mind here in this verse. But even here, we're to seek for our neighbor to do good to him for his edification. Now, it's interesting because a lot of times in Sunday school class from the Bible studies, I always stop to define words like the word love. And I argue that the biblical idea of love is seeking the highest good for another person and your willingness to sacrifice yourself to see that highest good attained. What Paul is saying to these strong faith Christians is this. Sure, you have the right to eat non-kosher foods. And if you want to, that's fine at your home or around other Christians who have no problem with it. But if you're around some weaker faith brother who, who eating such foods would cause them to stumble, then forego your exercise of Christian liberty. Now, writing to the Christians in the city of Corinth who were demanding that they got to exercise their rights, whatever it meant for other people, Paul pointed out that he had rights. He had the right to be supported by them financially. 
God commands that. And yet he never exercised that right, he said. In fact, he made sure he didn't take a salary for them, not because he didn't deserve one or had a right to insist on it, because he wanted them to understand that everything that was being done was done by grace. So someone else supported him while Paul worked among the Corinthians. But then he goes on to say this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, so as to win as many as possible. To the Jew, I became like a Jew, to win Jews. To those who are under the law, like those under the law, though I am myself not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those who have the law, I became like one, or to those who did not have the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those who are not under the law. To the weak, I became weak, as to win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means possible I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. What he's saying is he adjusted himself to the situation where he was at so that in no way would he be a stumbling block to other people he was trying to reach. Well, Paul knew that his ministry was not about him and his rights, but it was about Christ and reaching people with a saving message. And you know, I have to tell you, you know you've reached a certain level of maturity in the Christian faith, when you come to realize and accept and embrace the truth that it really isn't all about you. It's about Jesus. And the amazing thing is that if you wholeheartedly embrace that truth so as to die to yourself, something will happen. You'll find that what Jesus said was actually true, that whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it back again. That brings us to our second point, though, the example to follow. Now, Paul, when he was talking to the Corinthians and who were exerting their Christian liberty in a way that was hurting some other believers, uh, held himself up as an example, like that passage I just read. And he did that elsewhere as well. He would, he would say, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow my example. But here he goes right to Jesus as the premier example of what it means to forego your own rights so as to seek the good of others and build them up. I think of the church at Philippi. Remember, there were two ladies there who couldn't get along, Judea and uh, Syndicate. Can you imagine? Your name is, is recorded in the Bible forever because you couldn't get along with another lady in church. Not good. Well, they had some issues of division as well. And Paul was urging them to unity also. And he said this in Philippians 2, 1-11, which is one of the greatest passages in the whole scripture. He says this, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the experience, if there's any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. In other words, if you have any of these at all, then fill my joy out by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on pur- one purpose. And then he's, listen to this. And think about this. If, if people at your job or in your family just did this next couple lines, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not look out only for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's our example. Who, though he existed in the form of God, did not require equality with God. as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, meaning the incarnation. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him a name which is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 
8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. Now, Paul could have focused on the incarnation of the Son of God, how he left heaven and was born in a stable, or he could have told of, of the incident where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples while they're bragging about which one was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. He certainly could have mentioned Jesus' prayer in the garden when he was agonizing about the cross that was ahead of him and said, nevertheless, he said, Father, let this cup pass by me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But instead, he takes a line from Psalm 69, which was written by David, and he applies it to Jesus. In David's lament in that psalm, he's being persecuted and he's experiencing um, slander, not because of anything that he's done wrong, but because he belongs to God. As it says in our text, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. David is saying, God, the reason these people are persecuting me is because they can't get your, their hands around your throat. I have to say something here. God's people in every generation have always had to deal with the hostility that comes from the world. And it's shown either in physical violence or verbal abuse. I mean, think about it. Read what's said about Christians in news stories when you see the comments below. We're called right-wing, hate-filled, homophobic, racist, trying to shove our religion down everyone's throat. But Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, for this reason the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for the sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else had done, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that's written in their law. They hated me without a cause. John 15, 18 to 25. But how does verse 3 fit in with Paul's argument then? Well, he points out that rather than demand our rights and be self-seeking, Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul is saying to these strong faith Christians who are using their liberty in a way that's actually hurting other people, that instead of seeking for their own ease, they should do what Jesus did. Put up with the inconvenience. He put up with insults and reproach. How much more can you put up with just eating something that's not offensive to a person at a meal? If Christ is willing to make such a huge sacrifice for us, can we not, as strong Christians, sacrifice a little bit for the, of our liberty for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Jesus? Now, if you've been tracking with me so far, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, I understand what you're saying, at least somewhat, but I don't really see how this is relevant. I, I've never been to a place where people got upset because we were serving pork. We don't have Jewish people in our church, and the issue of foods we can eat and can't eat is not a concern for us, other than whether it has gluten or this or that. We do those things. But the principle that lies behind Paul's approach here is highly relevant to our age and our society as well. The principle is this. We should be ready to sacrifice ourselves for the good of other believers. That's the point. I have to tell you, we live in an incredibly self-focused, self-centered, self-indulgent age. Sadly, I've, I've heard women who are moms actually say, well, I've spent enough time sacrificing for everyone else. It's time for me to start focusing on my own needs as they walk away from their marriage and leave their four kids behind. 
Let me translate what she really meant. I'm tired of all the hard work and self-sacrifice for the good of others. It's time for me to be selfish. As far as the kids go, they'll be fine. And if they're not, well, it's a small price to pay for my happiness. Proverbs 14.1 says this, A wise woman builds her home, but the foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. There's a lot of foolish women and a lot of foolish men tearing down their own hands, or their own homes with their own hands, with all their self-centered choices. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. On Judgment Day, they're going to wish they hadn't. Well, having just quoted from the Old Testament, Paul then remarks uh, on the encouragement that comes from Scripture. This is found in verse 4. Look what he says. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. There's so much truth that can be mined from this treasure trove of verses that we're going to come back to this two weeks from now after Easter. That's Confirmation Sunday, and I think it's an appropriate text for that event. But I'll give you a few comments even right now. First of all, when Paul speaks of whatever is written in earlier times, he specifically has in mind what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Those books that are written in the Bible before Jesus came. And of course, those books point to Jesus both in his first and his second coming. Secondly, though, but though the first books of the Bible were written 15 centuries before Paul, 1,500 years before Paul, and the last ones were written four centuries before Paul, and the last of his writings were written 20 centuries before us, Paul's saying that it's all still relevant for us. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. My wife's nephew was going to school to be a priest. The seminarians get a lot of training in philosophy and church history and uh, teachings of the church council. I asked them at one time, um, how many books of the Bible do they study during their time? They said, well, the only one is the epistle to John, and that's only so that we can learn Greek. I suggested that if he was going to be a priest in a Roman church, perhaps he might want to read the book of Romans, the book that was written to that church. Now, I have to be quick to say this. The uh, denomination that I grew up in, if you went to their seminary, it wasn't much better. You were only required to take three Bible classes in a three-year program. Now think about that and compare that to what Jesus said when he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It sure seems to me that the church ought to teach what God says. And what does he say? It's found in the Bible. Well, the other thing we have to say is that God has given us the Bible for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's to function as a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. It's the truth book that keeps us from falling into error. It's the Rosetta Stone that allows you to correctly interpret everything that you see in the world. Here Paul tells us it was written for our instructions so that through perseverance and the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. It's the Scripture that tells us who God is and who we are. It tells us what our deepest problem is, sin, that alienates us from a holy God. But it also tells us of God's solution, the death of his Son as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So that if anyone, any of you, no matter how sinful, no matter what you've done, if you were to turn from your sins and trust in Christ's death on the cross for your sins, God would wipe the slate clean and declare you not guilty in a sight. And then believing these promises in the Bible, we're encouraged to persevere, and we do so in great hope. And that hope is not going to let us down in the end. Well, God and God alone can open the mind and change the heart and give us that hope of eternal life. And that's why Paul ends this section with a prayer for the people. This is verses 5 to 6. You know, the Irish are known 
for their blessings and toasts. Here's a couple. If God sends you down stony paths, may he give you strong shoes. Or this one. May you escape the gallows, avoid distress, and be healthy as a trout. That was said after a couple of pints, I think. How about this one? May your glass be ever full. May there a roof always be over your head. And may you be in heaven a half hour before the devil knows you're dead. Well, Paul wasn't Irish, but he knew how to do a prayer blessing. His goes like this. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that by, with one accord you will with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Same mind, one accord, one voice. Do you see why I titled my sermon, A Call for Unity? You know, Sesame Street uh, first started in 1969. Um, I was in first grade at the time, so I never really watched Sesame Street. But I do remember one song where they have a bunch of kids on a playground singing. And the refrain goes like this. We all sing with the same voice, the same song, the same voice. We all sing with the same voice, and we sing in harmony. That's what God wants from us to offer up our praise to him through Jesus Christ with one voice, with love for one another, with love for him. How about a motto for our church? How about a motto for your life? For the glory of God and the good of his people. Let everything be done for the glory of God and the good of his people. Let's pray. Our Father and God, you know, when there's not much division in a church, it's easy to talk about these things. Oh, yeah, that's fine. But when stress comes, when difficulties come, when there's disagreements, then our unity is tested. Father, we see our country being divided on all kinds of issues. Uh, people despise and hate each other. They can hardly tolerate each other. But there's one place, Lord, where there should be unity, and that's in the church where the truth is proclaimed. And your people's hearts have been humbled, and they know that everything is by grace. So, Father God, I pray for our church, for that. We pray and ask that you'd cause our love not only to grow for you, but for each other. That we would be willing to sacrifice ourselves for the higher good of other people. And, Father, we know that higher good is that they would come to know Jesus Christ and treasure him above all else. So bless us to that end. Give us the grace that we need. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.